Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for your scripture and for the way that you teach us and direct us in accordance with your will. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit um, to live in accord with your ways and to walk according to your commands. Bless us this day as we study the book of Acts. Illumine our hearts and minds to know how you would have your church live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we get started today, question for you, opening question. Every diet or hair growth company, remember Rogaine? I don't know if that's yeah. still around or not. A, uh, they all like to boast their before and after pictures. You know, there's the one on the left. Here's what this schlub looked like. And then he took this drug and voila, his bald head suddenly is filled with hair again or, or what have you. What do you think is the appeal of this approach? What is it about those before and after pictures? And you see it across the board, all kinds of different companies and brands and what have you will will show these before and after pictures what's the draw what's the appeal there do you think better looking okay well i mean yeah at the most basic level better looking yeah the process, like the, the process you have to go through and everything. right they don't they don't show that you're saying right. yeah they don't show the process they don't show the work they don't show the work that took it this is the problem with like those martha stewart things you know like uh, oh, you just have all these ingredients, you put them on the kitchen counter, and then five minutes later, voila, everything is perfect. Like, really? Is that how it works? Yeah, the diet ones. Yes. Say, the weight just fell off. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wish. I ate whatever I wanted. Lo and behold. There's something about those before and afters that appeal to us, I think, in, for some uh, not-so-good reasons, but also for some good reasons in the sense that... Um, Humans, we have this longing for improvement, for things to get better. Things are not the way that they ought to be in the world and in our own lives. And so we want to see a difference. We long for that. And if a product can come along and sell it, then we can be suckers for that. But uh, we'll see in today's um, passage that there is something about the gospel and the work that it does in the lives of God's people as a kind of before and after that does have great appeal, not because it's some product that's being peddled. In fact, as we'll see with Peter, it's just the opposite. But that uh, leads those who are around and who see these Christians um, to a place of wonder and amazement. So let's get into Acts, the end of chapter 2. We're picking up with verse 42. So this is, this is after all that we've had with, with Peter and on Pentecost, his opening sermon. Um, and 3,000 souls received the word and were baptized. And then it continues from there with Acts 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. There's a lot here just in these few verses. And in fact, this is a passage that has been returned to by the church through the ages as a kind of gold standard for this is what the life of the church looks like. They forgot to mention potlucks, but I'm, I promise you, it's in there. Yeah. Oh, so, said they distributed, they had wine. As any had need. Together. That's right. Yeah. Have need for jello molds. Um, 
But this is kind of the, the essence of this Christian community. So that number two on your handout, I have the gospel is embodied in the Christian community. Through the lives of God's people, their words and their deeds, the gospel is being testified to. And that verse uh, 42 in particular lays out a fourfold um, structure, if you will, or pattern for the life of the people of God. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to one, the second one, and to the fellowship, to the third one, to the breaking of bread, and then fourth and finally, to the prayers. I want to talk a little bit about each of these aspects, what it means, and how this continues to um, be practiced by the church today. Okay? So the first part says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word teaching there is didache. Um, didact- we get didactic from this word. Um, but the, the idea here is that already the apostles' teaching has this normative role in the community. Already it is instructive, they're recognizing, we need to attend to not only the Old Testament teachings, the Old Testament scriptures, the words of the prophets, but also the words of the apostles. This is already being handed down in an authoritative sense. And you see this in other places within the New Testament itself. Um, A passage from 1 Corinthians 15 that you have here. Um, This is a really important passage for a number of reasons, but Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He goes on from there. The really important significant thing is how Paul says, well, other than that testimony to the resurrection, how Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. And I've mentioned this before, the language he uses there is almost a technical language for handing down oral, uh, an oral teaching. That this is what was being taught and shared among those first Christians. Paul saying, now I'm sharing it also with you. Within those first believers, they're devoting themselves to unpacking that first teaching. When we think about what does this look like in the church today, well, this is, I mean, this is straightforward enough, right? Part of it is what we're doing right now. It's Bible study. It's getting together to study the scriptures. But what are other ways that we devote our, are devoted to the apostles' teaching? You're talking about the passing on? Well, the, I mean, yeah, right. Well, I think uh, in our homes when we have devotions and things like that, for sure. children and grandchildren. Absolutely. So that within the home, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, sharing it especially with with the next generation. Good. Other ways that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? I mean, let me ask you this. Do you think this is just a matter of kind of the head knowledge, or is there also an aspect of of being the practice of it, living it as well? I I would say that it's both, right? It's not only... Um, you know, a body of knowledge, body of beliefs, but it's also a way of life. Devoting ourselves to, to the apostles' teaching means that we inhabit that teaching, that we embody it in our own lives and, and strive to practice it. So that's the first thing that we see is they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the foundation of our life together. It's, it's the gospel, it's the, the teaching of the scriptures and sharing that with one another. 
The second one, it says, is the fellowship, okay? And the Greek word there is that great word koinonia, right? Um, there's a little bit of ambiguity here because koinonia has such a wide range of meanings. Koinos, um, from which koinonia comes, literally just means things in common. So koinonia is what you share in common. <clears throat> we translate it as fellowship, and I don't know, I think the way, when you hear fellowship, what do you think of? What are the things that, that jump to mind? Just first thing that comes Shrove to Tuesday. Hey, Shrove Tuesday. Very good. Thanks for the plug. Stan, be there, be square, 6 p.m., pancakes, sauce. It's going to be great. Potlucks. Potlucks. Okay, very good. What else? Church. The church. I mean, just the, 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 the life of the church. Okay, going, going to the service. Being together with one another. Conversation among baptized. Um, for the, those first Christians, I would say it includes all of that. And even more, this just deep sense of the koinonia, the communion, the fellowship that we have with one another by virtue of our communion, our fellowship with Christ. And John gets at this in his first letter. You've got it here, 1 John chapter 1, right at the beginning of that letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And in koinonia, okay? And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay. So here John lays out, what's the source of our koinonia? What's the source of our fellowship? Christ. It's Christ. It's not, well, we all kind of uh, look alike. We all have the same you know, background or something like that. What the world tends to do is to divide people according to all of these different kind of demographic categories. But what happens in the church is that we have a unity, a koinonia, a fellowship, that is found and founded in Christ alone. Because we have that koinonia with him, then we have koinonia with each other. Because let's be real. Are you, when, you, when you come to a church, do you always find yourself with other people whom you would hang out with under other circumstances? No, right? <laughs> like, Lord, no, no, no. Okay, you don't need to name names, all right? But, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, the fellowship, the community, the communion of the church is very countercultural. Because just to give one example, the trend in our society is to very much silo people by their age groups. So you've got youth culture and you've got the senior center and you've got, you know, the baby boomers or whatever. And it's very divided and isolated by your generation. But what the church does at its best is it's cross-generational, right? You're bringing together young and old. I'm going to tell you, this is an incredible fact, um, that at my last church in Spokane, one of our oldest members, and if she listens to this, as she, I know she does from time to time, she'll forgive me, but her, her name was Luella, okay? And our youngest member, the last uh, one that I had baptized before um, I took the call here, her name, they named her Luella, Okay? The youngest and the uh, close to the oldest members. Nobody else in between, Luella. 
I kid you not, here at Trinity, our oldest member is Helen Cedarholm, who turned 100 a few weeks ago. She lives right next door to almost our youngest, Helen Care. They live right next door to each other. How crazy is that? Okay, that's a, a little bit of a digression. But it's illustrative of this kind of cross-generational thing that we have in the church. It's part of our koinonia. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So this, this, when they talk about they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, it's that gathering together of the saints. Not just to say, hey, how you doing? But it's sharing the, the peace of Christ. Yeah. When our granddaughter was young uh-huh. and you know, they were going to church and whatever, she would go to church and she'd look around. And this was like three years old. And look around and find the oldest person there. <laughs> right who did not have a partner. Mm. It was amazing. She'd right. always find something. Find somebody who's by themselves. And she would go to them yep. and sit with them during the whole service wow. and take care of whatever they needed. Yeah. Whatever. It was It was wonderful to watch. Absolutely. It was just so amazing. Yeah, it's, it's so sweet. And there's such, I mean, um, the older folks need those young, the young people, right? It's such a um, life-giving sort of thing. But the flip side of it is also true. Our, our kids need the older members as well. We all need each other. I'm just like in a family, in the family of faith, in this koinonia, this fellowship. We all have a role to play. Everybody is needed. So we see this from the earliest days of the church. They have the apostles teaching, the fellowship. And then you have the breaking of bread. Well, here's potlucks. Okay, there it is. Um, commentators are divided on what they mean by this. Do, are they simply talking about, yeah, they got together and they shared meals in one another's homes. It'll talk about this as the, the passage goes on. We know that, that this happened. But I would suggest that it's being used here in the more technical sense of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, and this is, we see this elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, said, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation? Oh, and I should say, what's the Greek word there for participation? You just learned it. Koinonia. Yes. It is a koinonia in the body of Christ. It's the breaking of the bread. Or again, later in the book of Acts, uh, we're turning to page two now. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That's the story where Eutychus falls out of the window because the sermon was going too long, right? First story that every preacher learns, okay? Don't go too long. You might kill people. Uh, <clears throat> but this is significant also because on the first day of the week, um, I've mentioned this before, how the church, one of the, the kind of sneaky good testimonies to the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, is that the church starts gathering on, on Sunday, the first day of the week. This is the, the day now for worship. So they're gathering, they're gathering um, uh, to, to hear the, the apostles' teaching, but also to break bread. I submit to you, this is talking about the sacrament, gathered together for the Lord's Supper. So this was right there, part and parcel of, I mean, and it would make sense. Jesus had instituted this. Paul already is saying, I hand on to you what I received of first importance. Um, this is part of their life together, their koinonia. And then finally, the prayers. And uh, it's suggested that here, it's not just talking about prayer in general, but the prayers 
meaning probably something akin to our liturgy or our order of, of prayer and worship. Um, it would have included the, our Father, the Lord's Prayer, to be sure, but it probably also included um, Jewish prayers, prayers that they had inherited and had been praying from um, you know, their whole life as, as God's people. And I think here it's uh, good to know, this is one of those nice little Latin phrases. Um, every once in a while I like to, to throw these in here. This is one that you really ought to know if you don't already. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Let me hear you say that. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Next time you're at you know, a potluck or a party, you can just kind of drop that into conversation. You'll look extremely smart. Um, but what it means literally is the law of prayer is the law of belief, or the, the rule of prayer is the rule of, of believing. And the idea is the way that you worship, the way that you pray, the way that you come before the, the Lord is the way that you believe as well. How we act before God then affects how we believe. Sometimes we want to think, well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how I worship, how I, I pray, how I come before God, because, you know, it's all just as good as one way or another. And there's some truth to that. But we have to recognize, look, the way that we pray, the way that we worship God then informs our faith. This is why we do things like bow and kneel, right, and stand. While we have this almost calisthenics of prayer in worship, because it's lex orandi, lex credendi. The way that we worship God then shapes and informs the way, that we, the way that we believe. So again, this was here from the very beginning, this kind of fourfold pattern of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, um, the fellowship, the koinonia, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Would you say this is still a, a pretty fair description of the church today? Yes. I would say so. I mean, there's a lot of other, uh, as you might say, value-added things that have, have we've included through the centuries. But at the most basic level, this is the, the shape of the church's life together. The listening and receiving the apostles' teaching, worshiping, the sacrament, prayers, this, this is who we are. And then that spills forth and issues forth in mercy to the community. So it continues from there, verse 44. It says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, in koinos, okay, that's being shared. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I know what you're thinking, Pastor, they were communists. This is horrible. What are we, what are we going to do here? Um, and, and in fact, um, Karl Marx, with his vision of communism was essentially trying to create a secular version of this early, vision of the early church. Can we force people to do this, to want to do this? Um, I, some of you know I was a sociology major as an undergrad at MSU, and in one of my last classes, I wrote a paper on this, comparing and contrasting the kind of communist vision, communist utopia versus the vision of the church in Acts. And the fundamental difference is that these people are not doing it through coercion, right? Mm -hmm. This is through the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're recognizing, hey, there's needs in our community. Let's pool our resources so that we can share to others who have needs. Does the church still do this? Yes. Yeah. Now, we do it through more formal means now, right? But it's still happening. 
we still pass the plate around. When, when somebody's in trouble, we still share from our, uh, from our own abundance and from our own resources. So it's not that um, we have to have, you know, set up some kind of weird commune and like, okay, now we're just, we're going to have one bank account and everybody's going to share. Like, that's not the point. These people freely, for the movement of the spirit within them, we're, we're sharing with one another. It's a big difference, right? I mean, I hope that that's clear that this is not um, just some kind of weird, warmed-over um, communism or something like that. Well, you have Barnabas who gave very freely and generously and yep. blessed for it. Yes. And you have Ananias and Sapphira. Yes. I can't wait till we get to that story. <laughs> yes. You know, big difference. Big difference. And it's interesting. I've I've been um, reading in, in my devotions in Exodus of and the the building of the tabernacle, and it really surprised me. More than once, the Lord says to Moses to pass on to the people. Says anybody whose heart moves them to give for the offerings, and then later it says they actually had to restrain the people because they were giving too much. Oh, that's a good problem to have, right? They were giving so much that they were like, okay, guys. Enough already. Like, thank you. Thank you. Um, so this has been the, the modus operandi. This has been the MO for God's people from the very beginning. This is not forced. It's done freely. Now, that doesn't mean then that um, we don't also need to hear God's word of law and say, hey, this is something that we ought to do as the people of God. But ultimately, God loves a cheerful giver. He hates a, an uncheerful giver. No, doesn't say that. But um, we, we give that out of that, uh, that recognition. It all comes from him. Okay. Questions or, or comments about that? I think it, it's, it can be, people can read this and just um, idealize too much that early church and think, well, this looks nothing like our whole home churches today. Today, we've, we've had 2,000 years of practice of doing this. It's not that it doesn't still happen, it's that we do it through different systems and processes now. But it continues to happen, continues to be the, the life of the church. All right, and then verses 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So number four on your handout, the bottom of page two. When the church orders its life faithfully, the entire community is blessed. Boy, that's a big thing to, to take away from this. Yeah, man. How long did it take before the temple overseers um, started to, to sense a problem here? Yeah. People are still coming back to the temple yes. and just basically saying, um, yep. you know, repent because... yes. Right. No, no this, is, this is a big part of the tension of Acts. And we're going to see it continue to grow. Um, well, even as we move into to, to chapter 3, that there is this sense of continuity and discontinuity with the old, however you want to put it, the old covenant people of God. Okay? There's that continuity that they're still in the temple. They are still worshiping the God of Israel. Now they are worshiping him as he has revealed himself in his son, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, so there's that discontinuity as well. How long did it take? It didn't take too long for them to, to start running afoul of the religious leadership. I mean, we'll see it in the next couple of chapters here already. But among, uh, at least at first, and to a lesser extent as it continues, 
as the, these uh, early Christians, the members of the way, as they would be called, when they're ordering their life faithfully, it blesses everybody. And people are, are seeing this and they're taking notice. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Were they doing anything extraordinary that the people were taking notice and like, wow, God is active among them? I would say the stuff they were doing is pretty ordinary, right? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're providing for people in need. In other words, they're, they're showing mercy. But when the, when the church is fully devoted to be the church and not try to be something else, the church doesn't have to be the Rotary Club or the YMCA, right? And the, the church doesn't have to be like some social justice arm. Like the church's job is to be the church, to show the mercy of Christ, to share his compassion in word and deed. And then the world is like, whoa, okay. They, they're blessed by that as well. Still true for us today. Galatians 6, Paul says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's that sense of, okay, we are going to care for our community. We start within the household of faith, within the church, but then it spills over to others who have need. Or again, we heard this last week from Jesus um, in the the Sermon on the Mount at the top of of page 3. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, you you could underline there in that first line, you are the light of the world, of the whole world we are shining out to. Those good works are not only a blessing to your fellow believers, they're a blessing especially to neighbors who are in need, to those who don't know the Lord. And through that, when the people of God live this way, then outsiders are able to get a glimpse of God's kingdom at work. See, Uh, This is the way that it's happening at the beginning here in the book of Acts. This is the way that it continues to work among the church. And note well that last line, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Who's responsible for bringing people to faith? God is, right? This is why we don't, why we don't do the Oprah thing, you know? Like, hey, we're giving away cars here. Like, come to church and you know, we'll, we'll buy you off. We'll bribe you, basically. No, we'll be faithful to who we are, the truth as we have received it. God's the one who takes care of the rest. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Now, in the actual practice of it, it can get more complicated. You know, does that mean then that we shouldn't have a parking lot or that we shouldn't have a sign or something? Hey, God's going to bring the people. We don't have to worry about it. No, there's that tension there, right? We have to use our sanctified common sense sometimes. Say, we're not trying to, to hide it under a bushel basket, all right? We're going to let it shine. Christians are Christian in public. Um, and we don't need to, to shy away from that either. All right. Thus, we end chapter 2, but let me pause there for questions or comments about that passage and um, that picture of the the early church, the believers there. It's actually so significant that it's going to be substantively repeated in a couple of chapters, the end of chapter 4, too. Um, So we continue to see this picture of what the church is like. I'm bringing to mind someone, I can't remember who it was, if I read it or heard it, speaking, but how we're losing generations out of the church, and it's not, yeah. and 
this person was actually saying the more the church tries to keep up with the time right. or appear like a country club or whatever, yeah. thinking they're going to draw more people in, right. he, he was saying, I think it was like my generation, they have no tolerance for that because they see their baby boomers parents, I mean their baby boomer parents, their marriages are failing, Sure. everything's going, why would they want anything that looks like that structure yeah. anyway? Um, and that the church, by holding itself separate, gives the message we're something different. Right. Not just the run-of-the-mill, like you said, YMCA. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was an interesting point because the tendency is to think, well, maybe we need right. something. Fill in the blank. Yeah. Yes. What's going to be the, the silver bullet? No, that's spot on. Like, if we don't have anything distinctive to offer, why would anybody come? Right? I mean, this is, uh, you might think of it as the Unitarian problem. Um, Unitarians exist for, okay. Step on soapbox here. <laughs> I feel like I can do this because in, uh, you know, Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon, he always used to, to rag on the Unitarians. But truly, the Unitarian church exists for baby boomers who have abandoned their faith but still have the habit of going to somewhere on Sunday morning to get coffee with people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone in a couple of generations, folks. And you see this with, um, with other denominations that the more that they relinquish the truth of who they are, they are not growing as a result of that. They're shrinking. They're going away. Because why wouldn't I just sleep in, read the newspaper, you know, listen to the radio? Um, if I'm going to get up in the morning, it better be because somebody rose from the dead, see? Because I feel like I'm rising from the dead some days. <laughs> and like, that's, that's what's going to, to do it. Um, I, I think that's spot on, Becky. Like, it's because of who we are, what we have to offer as the church. It's almost strange in a way. It's, it's foreign. Now, there's, again, a, a fine line to be drawn there. Part of the Reformation was Luther saying, hey, guys, can we at least speak in a language that people, like, understand? Like, we're, our goal is not to, to be so weird that everybody's like, okay, I can't even, I don't even know what you're saying. Um, but at the same time, conveying, yeah, there's something separate about this, something sacred, something holy, and something beautiful. That's what draws people in and through the truth of, of God's word. So, yeah, all right, step back off my soapbox. Go ahead, I Kyle. have a friend who came to Christ maybe 20 years ago, and she was very upset that we were not in our church using the King James Bible because she felt right. that was a special language right. and very important to her to have that specialness to yes. it. Yes, yeah, and, and so I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. But um, by the same token, these are the, these are the sorts of incremental uh, um, adaptations that the church has made through the centuries to say, okay, yes, um, it's always a matter of translation. And King James, we can be really good, but it, it's also, it's okay for us to use the ESV, for example, you know, um, or even in personal devotions to use something that's more like a, a, a paraphrase. So um, it's not that the church has to like rigidly, I'm going to stay this way forever, but it's that give and take and always striving to be faithful to what we what we have received so yeah it's not easy folks it takes the discernment of the holy spirit what's core what's essential and what's not i mean that's a, a continual uh, give and take so all right let's go on to chapter three then and uh peter is about to do something really cool all right <clears throat> now peter and john were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour ninth hours three o'clock in the afternoon and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. 
Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, several things to to point out. We've already sort of made this point, number five on, on your handout. The Christian community is in continuity with God's ancient people and promises. Again, there they are worshiping at the temple. They don't just ditch the temple right away and say, hey, you know what, now we are Christians. We don't have anything to do with this Old Testament type stuff. No, still they're worshiping at the temple, gathering even at the hour of prayer, upholding those ancient rites and practices. They would change. As we said, the Sabbath day itself changed. If ever there was a thing that they thought could not change, that would have been it. But by the same token, they're not just rejecting everything that came before them. Actually, what happens is much more profound. It's now those ancient promises and the ancient people of God is being reconfigured around Christ. Take, for example, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this. These are some harsh words, but understand what he's saying here. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is not missing words here, but understand what he's saying. He's saying, look, we ourselves, the Trinitarian community, we worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We are the true circumcision. Now, you guys may know, when he speaks of the, the circumcision, that's a, a shorthand for talking about the Israelites. He's saying, we are the true people of God. Circumcision was the, uh, one of those um, essential markers for identifying who were God's people. Now Paul is reconfiguring that and saying the true people of God, the true circumcision, are those who worship through the Spirit and by Jesus Christ. So it's not the, the case that Paul is saying that there's such discontinuity that they have nothing to do with the God of Israel. Rather, it's that now those promises find their true fulfillment in Christ and through his body, the church. You with me? Now, there was something, a similar move made at the time of the Reformation, interestingly. Um, at least in the first movement, uh, the first wave of the Reformation, the, called the Lutheran Reformation, um, was very much a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Notice this, in the the small called articles, which are are part of our Lutheran Confession of Faith, the Book of Concord, Martin Luther himself wrote this. The article on the church, you have it here on, on your handout. Luther says, we do not concede to them, that is to their Roman Catholic opponents, that they are the church. And in truth, they are not the church, nor will we listen to those things 
which under the name of church they enjoin or forbid. For thank God, today a child seven years old knows what the church is, namely the holy believers and lambs who hear the voice of their shepherd. For the children praise thus, I believe in one holy Christian church. This holiness does not consist in albs, tonsures, long gowns, and other of their ceremonies devised by them beyond Holy Scripture, but in the word of God and true faith. That's the essence of the people of God. Now, again, Luther could be pretty combative and pretty polemical, and here he's really getting after it, all right? Um, but what he's talking about is that what identifies and defines the people of God is faith, belief in the gospel, whether wherever they're coming from, whatever. He would not have said the true church is the Lutheran church. Actually, he hated the fact that they were even starting to be called Lutherans. He just wanted to be called Christians or even Catholics in that root sense of you know, universal. Um, he's saying for those who um, would say that they're on some kind of ecclesiastical higher ground, in other words, well, we are the, the true church and you guys down here, you, you reformers and so forth, you're not part. I mean, Luther himself gets cast out as a, as a heretic. He says, no, what makes us the church is not that we happen to have such and such bishop or that we wear such and such outfit. The, what makes us the church is that we have the gospel. See? Uh, and so there's that similar kind of dynamic of the continuity and the discontinuity retaining the good, throwing out what had been corrupted and, and contrary to God's purposes. All right, I just said a mouthful there. Let me um, pause for uh, clarifications or, or questions about that. And I'm, all of that is just riffing off the fact that Peter and John were at the temple, okay? <laughs> but they're still, they're, they still, if you would have asked them if they were Jews in that moment, I think they would have said yes. They did not view themselves as repudiating that Jewish identity, but having it be fulfilled because now the Messiah has come. This is what we've been waiting for. As now Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, it goes on. Number six on your handout. God gives attention to the lowly. It's a very poignant moment here. This man lame from birth is being carried. They lay him at the, the temple gate. Um, and... Is this the kind of person that people would usually pay attention to, do you think? No. No. I mean, this is somebody, this, this kind of thing is going to be happening all the time. People are just walking past them, don't even notice them. Okay. Um, but Peter has this, this moment, he, he says, you know, you wonder, why is he so serious about this? Verse 4, it says, Peter directed his gaze at him. And the Greek verb there is uh, atenazo. Atenazo, from which we get our word attention means to gaze at, you know, deeply. Um, and Peter's gazing at him, and he says to them, to the, the man, look at us. Why would he make such a big deal out of that? Because this is the one thing that nobody is doing for this man. Looking at him. Seeing him. This still happens in our society. There are people who it's like, we just don't want, we don't want to see them. We're going to act like they're not there, um, like they, they, don't, they don't matter. I mean, we, we do it through public policy. We do it through personal practice. But God regards the lowly. Psalm, Psalm 138 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. 
And uh, again, the, from the Magnificat, Mary's song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the humble estate of his servant. This is a, a truism of Christianity that God regards the lowly, that he identifies with the weak and the marginalized and, and the outcast. I was listening to this podcast with a, a guy who wrote this book. I got to read this book. He's not a Christian guy, but he's wrote, written this book um, describing all the ways that Christianity has influenced and impacted Western civilization. Things that people nowadays just take for granted, like that you, we would have a preference for the lowly and the weak and the downtrodden. He says, that's not to be taken for granted. And in fact, our favorite German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, this is something that he despised about Christianity. He said, no, why would you have this preference for the weak? I mean, it's very much a survival of the fittest. There's a reason that Nietzsche's philosophy suffused the Nazism. Because it was, no, let's, let's get out, the, uh, get rid of those who are weak. They're holding the rest of us back. Nietzsche despised this Christian ethic. And I would say that he was speaking more naturally from that sinful nature, which says, might makes right. If you've got the power, step on those who are powerless. But the way that the gospel operates, the way that our God operates is he regards the lowly. He looks on those whom the world does not look on. And we see this here, I mean, in Peter and, and with the early Christians. Look at us. And then through the power of the name of Christ, I mean, it's a a wonderful line, and people will still kind of proverbially say this sometimes, silver and gold have I none. Uh, you know, when the people come to the door asking for things, silver and gold have I none, but this I give to you. Um, but I think that uh, um, Luke, who, as we know, authored the Gospel of Luke, that he's drawing some parallels here between Jesus' own ministry. So on the back of your handout, number seven, the ministry of Jesus is recapitulated. There's your $5 term for being repeated, okay? Summed up in the name of Christ. Because think of that story of the paralyzed man and his friends have to carry them around and they bring him to Jesus. You remember this? And they have to open the roof and, and let him down. I mean, it's a, a whole big to-do. Um, and then Jesus says to him, I say, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Same kind of thing is happening here. A man who is lame, he can't walk. And now Peter says, silver and gold have I none. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's not Peter's power. It's the name of Christ. He took him by the right hand, raised him up. And I find this to be an interesting detail, it says here. Immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. And it had, I mean, his, his body had atrophied through years of disuse, lack of use. But just like that. But this is the, the work of the gospel and the power of the kingdom coming. You think of Isaiah 35, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. It's a very vivid image around here in Arcadia this time of year, isn't it? You see these deer just bounding along. You're going to put a fence around your garden. You're cute. And then just going to bound right over it. But the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This 
uh, vision of Isaiah was realized in Christ, and now it's extended through the, through the ministry of the church. It's Peter is basically, it's, it's just retelling the gospel now through their ministry. All right, last thought here. Number eight, the greatest witness of the church is the changed lives of her people. We heard it there in when Jesus healed the man, and then they were filled with awe. Again here, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Look, most of us, we do not have a testimony as dramatic as this man, right? But the work of God in your life and in mine is what the world is is able to see. And let's be clear about this. You and I, we're not usually aware of it. We don't necessarily recognize it. That God is working in and through you, and the world takes notice. I asked at the outset, what's the power of that before and after picture? Um, Especially for for those of us who maybe come to Christ later in life. It can be even more dramatic, right? When you knew somebody before they came to faith, and then um, as they become a believer, their life changes. But for those of us even who have been people of faith our whole lives long, that's a testimony and a witness to others. Um, You guys know me. I'm not usually one who's prone to quoting popes, but um, I've always uh, appreciated this quote from um, Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Emeritus Pope Benedict, I guess. Um, But many years before he became pope, he he said this. He said, The only really effective defense for Christianity comes down to two arguments, namely the saints that the church has produced and the art which has grown in her womb. I think he overstates the case, okay? Um, But you understand the the point he's making is when people want to see the credibility of the gospel, they look at the lives of of her people. You know, are you people of forgiveness, of kindness, of compassion? Are you people of grace? It'd be a whole other Bible study and conversation to have, and the art that has grown in her womb. Beauty itself is its own witness, but uh, that's something for, for another day. But one last passage here, Philippians 1, Paul hints at this as well. He says, only let your manner of life, and the verb there, the Greek word is politeuestha, from which we get politics. The root of politics is simply your public way of life. It's how we live together in public. So let your your manner of life, meaning plural, you as the church, your public way of being, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. The church lives as God has called for us to live, we practice our lives faithfully. When we order our lives faithfully as Christians, the the world takes notice and our neighbors are blessed. It's better for the world, for Christians to be Christians, for the church to be unashamed in who we are in Christ. Okay, thank you very much. We will pick up next week with Peter's sermon to explain that miracle. See you then.